The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. I'm Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Scott Seligman, writer, historian, genealogist, and former businessman. His latest book, The First Chinese American, The Remarkable Life of Wang Qingfu, was recently published. Scott, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about Wang Qingfu. Delighted. How did you discover Wang Qingfu, and what made you decide to write about him? Well, actually, I discovered him on a list that I found on the internet of the most prominent Chinese Americans. And I went, you know, went down the list. Most of them were very contemporary figures. You know, I am Pei, Vera Wang, um, uh, Yo-Yo Ma, that sort of thing. Or going back a little bit further, uh, Anna Mae Wong. But he was a standout because he was a 19th century figure. And I couldn't really name other 19th century Chinese Americans. It was almost as if nobody had come to prominence in that community, although they were here for the second half of the century. And he was listed as a... Um, as a Chinese civil rights activist who had fought against the Exclusion Act. And since, in my mind, the Exclusion Act, the, the Chinese had kind of cowered in a defensive crouch and, uh, and allowed this horrible piece of legislation to come down on their heads, I just decided I needed to find out a little bit more about this guy. And that was really what started it. And what did you discover? Well, um, lots and lots of things. First of all, um, I found out that he was from Shandong province, which immediately made him different from almost every other Chinese who was here in the United States at the time. They were, uh, they were almost to a man from Guangdong province, uh, the vast majority of them from a particular area of Guangdong. Uh, we call it uh, Taishan today, but it was actually called uh, Xinning or Sunning in Cantonese back then. And um, he also came under different auspices. A lot of the, most of the Chinese came initially as laborers. Uh, first, um, first to work in the, um, uh, first in the, in the in the gold rush, and then eventually to work in the on the railroad. Wang came as a student. Uh, he had met up with some missionaries in Shandong, and um, had uh, in fact converted uh, to Christianity, became a Baptist, uh, and was brought to the United States to complete his education with the idea that he might go back to China and spread the gospel. So that was the beginning of the story. You make much in the book of the fact that Wang was the first or among the first to use the term Chinese-American. What did he mean by that phrase, and has that meaning changed over time? Well, first of all, he was the first, as far as we know, to use the term. It was the English name that he gave to New York's first Chinese newspaper, Chinese-language newspaper, which he published in 1883. Uh, No one had seen that term before. But that wasn't, but he, and he never specifically explained why he named the newspaper that. But sub- subsequently, Wang spent a lot of time really, in my mind, defining what he thought that term ought to mean. And he was very specific about it as time went on. He got very, very specific. Uh, but to him, being a Chinese American meant, first of all, um, getting rid of Chinese clothing. Because the, China, the Chinese in the United States up until uh, the 1880s, 1890s, were dressing in robes. Uh, the, the kind that you would see in China during the late Qing. Uh, it meant cutting off the hair cues. That was very important to him. Um, so essentially, on the one hand, acculturating, looking more like Americans to the extent that they could. It meant learning English and being able to communicate with Americans in English. 
And it also meant giving up some of the vices that people in, in the popular mind were associated with Chinese, particularly opium. Um, he was also against prostitution and gambling, too, but uh, nobody has specifically said those were Chinese vices. Um, so he talked about those things very specifically. He wanted the Chinese to do in America to do those things, in, and, and he felt that if they did, they would be in a much better position to demand equal rights than they otherwise were. But one other point on that, he never... He never meant that they should give up thinking about China or talking about China or having ideas about China, and he himself never did. He was uh, very anti-Qing. He was delighted when the Qing, in fact, he, he came to that con the conclusion that the Qings needed to fall, uh, not constitutional monarchy, that he, they needed to fall long before Sun Yat-sen did. Um, so it was, in a way, it was a paradigm of what a hyphenated American has really become in the, in the 20, 20th century, in the 21st century someone with strong cultural ties to the old country, but able to operate seamlessly as an American uh, in, the, in the new country. You mentioned at the outset that he spent a lot of time arguing against the Exclusion Act and later the Geary Act. Right. But it seems, as one reads the book, that he was fighting mostly on behalf of Chinese already in the United States rather than on would-be immigrants. What were his motivations and how successful was he? Well, that's exactly right. At the very beginning, when somebody suggested cutting off immigration or at least holding down immigration from China, uh, another Chinese in the United States, he was indignant. But as time went on, his position changed. Initially, he simply failed to take up the cause of the, the faceless future immigrants from China. Um, uh, because the Exclusion Act did two things. The Exclusion Act stopped future immigration, and it also, uh, and, and not entirely, just of, really of laborers. And it also rendered the Chinese in the United States ineligible for citizenship. Those were the two things it did. He never fought very hard against the first one, and eventually actually came to embrace it. And he claimed that other Chinese in the United States agreed with him that it was okay to choke off future immigration of Chinese laborers. They didn't need the competition in the laundry business was one of the things that he said. Uh, and I don't think he was entirely accurate when he said he was speaking for all the Chinese on that point, but he was speaking for himself. Um, uh, so on, on, the, on the one hand, he never really cared that much about that group. And as time went on, he began to the, the, he he not he supported um, the restriction on immigration because these folks were inconvenient to him for his argument. He was arguing for citizenship for acculturated Chinese, and these folks, most of them, weren't going to acculturate. Possibly, probably weren't in a position to acculturate. A lot of them were going to go back to China eventually after they made their fortunes. So he simply failed to take up their cause, and eventually uh, was made essentially made a break with them and said, "The people I'm worrying." about now, and this is mostly through the 1890s, are the Americanized Chinamen. And, that, and I use that term because, because he did. It sounds as though part of this is a class issue. You talk about laborers, and he was certainly not a laborer. But there also is at least a tinge of, perhaps put it nicely, regionalism, a little less nicely, chauvinism. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not limited to Chinese that one part of a country thinks another part of the country is less well-educated, ignorant, right. dirty from the right. countryside. 
But he seems particularly harsh about people from Guangdong. Yes. Why? He was, and, and, he, and it came up many, many times in the research. Um, well, first, of course, as you, as, you, as you allude to, there's traditional prejudices within China. The Northerners don't think much of the Southerners. The Southerners don't think much of the Northerners. Never the twain shall meet. And Wang certainly had all those prejudices. But interestingly, you talk about class. For him, class was regionalism. He talked about the Northern Chinese as if in some way they were higher class than the Cantonese. And never really proved it. Although he did once make the comment that... Um, Northern Chinese, that and he, was, he was talking about actually the Chinese diaspora, the fact that the Cantonese had sent so many people abroad. And he said, a good Northern Chinaman would eat his children before he would allow them to emigrate. You know, no, no attention to the fact that he himself, of course, had emigrated. Um, I suspect that um, Wang didn't get an entirely positive reception from the Cantonese who were here in this country, and that, he, and that, and, and that the feeling was somewhat mutual here. He looked down on them. I think they looked at him as a creature from another planet. I mean, the Cantonese in the United States mostly looked at themselves as, what part of Guangdong are you from? Uh, I'm not suggesting they didn't know they were Chinese in some cosmic sense. Of course, they would have used that term. But mostly, the important distinctions that mattered to them were, what part of Guangdong are you from? Are you, are you from Samyap or Seyap? You know, and, and, and within that, which particular, which particular county? Wang must have looked like a Martian to them. He was Chinese, but he wasn't. He didn't speak any known dialect of Cantonese, although he claimed to. And I suspect that the, um, um, that the, the feeling really between him and the Cantonese was ultimately quite mutual. Yet, he fought for the, Cant for the rights of the Cantonese in the United States. So there's the paradox. You say what he claimed to. There seems to be a lot of fabrication by Mr. Wong, why would he make things up the way he did when he was doing all sorts of really extraordinary things? It's a good question, and of course I've caught him, caught him in you know lots of lots of white lies, um, and they would sometimes they were to get himself out of a jam. Sometimes they were to make himself look a little better than he otherwise would have looked. The same reason anybody else um, um, engages in white lies, but despite it all. I found him ultimately a man of, of, of really very strong principles. Mm. And that's the paradox of him. He would lie about a lot of the little things, but he really was a very committed person. And, um, you know, I, I actually, I, I liked him a lot by the end of the book. I have been surprised that some people who've read the book have come to me and said, why did you write a book about that man? He was such a charlatan. And in my mind, he was a titan. He was a civil rights icon for the Chinese. But I can see how other people looked at him in another way. Mm. One of his commitments seems at best attenuated. You mentioned at one point that he didn't have much of a personal life right. in the United States. He left a wife and baby in China, had apparently no communication with them until 26 years later when his son writes him a letter. Right. What do you think of... Why would somebody just up and leave his family and have absolutely no contact and apparently no interest in trying to get them to the United States. Um, ultimately an unanswerable question here. Why he left his family is very clear. 
Um, he was involved in a, in a, in a push against the, um, the Qing dynasty. It was a particularly ham-handed one that, in my view, had very little, if any, chance ever of succeeding. But nonetheless, um, he, was, he had to get out of Dodge. He would, the, the Qings would have killed him and, in fact, at one point tried to extradite him back to China um, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a prelude to that. So he had a good reason to leave China. Uh, and, I, and I think he had a good reason initially to leave his wife and baby behind because he had to get out very quickly. Now, the, 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 the rest of your question, though, which is why didn't he apparently communicate with them or make an effort to get them out of China, I have no really good answer for. In fact, he said he had not heard from them or spoken with them in 26 years, but he had some information out of Shandong um, that he talked about. So I suspect that he, if he had tried harder, he certainly could have gotten money to them or gotten a letter to them. I don't quite buy that. But he was a man of, of few personal relationships and high principles. He really was, whatever his cause was of the moment, and they changed. At one point it was anti-religion, anti-Christianity. It later became um, suffrage for the Chinese. Um, whatever his cause was of the moment, he threw himself into it hook, line, and sinker. He was, he was committed. Why do you think he went back to China after all those years? Oh, well, several very swift. I think the, the, the principal reason was the letter that he got from his son, who found him after 25 years and um, said, mother is ill, send money. And I think he also, I suspect he had done some um, uh, digging around to find out whether he would still be on the, uh, in the crosshairs. And I think he concluded before he went into China that he would be relatively safe. Although he did take the um, uh, precaution of trying to get a passport from the United States before he went into China, and one was issued to him in Hong Kong and then summarily canceled by the, by the consulate, which I think was, of course, in retrospect, quite horrible because he was a bona fide American citizen. But the State Department was, uh, had an internal rule that they were not giving out passports to Chinese, even if they had um, naturalization papers at that point. Um, so I suspect that. I also think that he actually took that trip back to Asia because people owed him money in Hong Kong and he was going to try to collect some money. And he was, you know, if you read the book, you know, a colossally poor businessman. Almost everything he touched turned to ash as far as business was concerned. Which raises an interesting question because he seems to have no source of income. He gives talks, the admission huh. fees are tiny and the audiences are tiny. What did he live on? Yeah, he was really the, um, uh, I think there's a Yiddish word for it, a Luftmensch. A man who sort of lives on air with no discernible means of support. Um, he lived on, well, he did have uh, sources of income. They just weren't very steady. Um, he got, uh, the lecture fees were one of them. Um, uh, there was some money in the newspaper business. I'm sure he paid himself salaries while he was publishing. And then he sold a lot of articles to English newspapers, uh, English language newspapers. I counted about 140 of them. And in fact, I put it in the back of the book, an appendix of it, because I don't think anybody had ever collected them before. The, his whole um, collection of writings, almost all of which were about China, the Chinese, Chinatown, that sort of thing. Um, so that, I, think those, that, I think that's what he lived on. But you know, the saddest part was uh, there was one article. Uh, Wang was arrested um, uh, for uh, registering to vote fraudulently. He was actually not guilty of it. but. There were some people in the police department that wanted to see him quieted down, so they arrested him. And in the trial, it came out that he had no permanent place to sleep in New York's Chinatown at that point. He was sleeping where there was a free bed, and he kept his belongings in a trunk in a Chinese restaurant. 
I found that very, very sad in a way um, because he didn't seem to have close personal relationships or, or much stability. But again, for Wang, it was all about the cause of the moment. It actually reminds me of some of the contemporary Chinese, again, not of his class, mm-hmm. but the people who come over, and I was going to raise this question from a different angle, but the snakeheads, mm-hmm. the immigrant smuggling back then, mm-hmm. certainly seems to have parallels today. And there are plenty of Chinese illegal immigrants here today who live tend to a room in an illegal basement right. apartment in Queens. Right. Um, do these parallels make any sense? Well, yeah, sure. And I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I'm doing some research now on uh, early Chinatown in uh, New York City, and uh, tend to a tend to a room would would be would be um, generous, uh, the way that the Chinese lived. And in fact, the census takers. And I, I found a wonderful article about a census taker going into a Chinese home in about 1870, I think it was in um, in, uh, in New York's Chinatown, and being completely bewildered by all the people who were there and the close quarters that they slept in and the fact that, of course, in those days they thought all the Chinese looked alike and trying to figure out how you were going to... In fact, I think it's why the Chinese were so severely undercounted in some of the censuses because the the census takers were no match for this. So, yes, absolutely. You saw it then, you see it today. It's still true. To finish up, because we're running out of time, what do you think are some of the lessons or legacies of Wang Qingfu for Chinese Americans and non-Chinese Americans today? Well, I think on one level, I think his importance is um, stems from the fact that um, when people think back to the 19th century, there's such a blank. It's almost like. Um, um, uh, I wanted to draw a parallel to the Holocaust, where people feel that, um, you know, in a lot of cases, the Jews never stood up for themselves, and a lot of them went to the concentration camps. But of course, that's not true, and there were places like the Warsaw Ghetto where people really did take a stand. Wang took a stand. Wang um, engaged white America on its own terms, debated it, bested it in arguments. Um, I think the very fact of Wang Qingfu, despite the fact that he wasn't ultimately successful, well, I guess he was ultimately successful, 50 years after his death was when the Exclusion Act really was, was canceled. But the very fact of a man like him, that there was a man who was willing to stand up and able and had the tools to do it, is, I think, of immense importance um, because he's a hero. And a hero certainly for Chinese Americans. I think anybody who believes in civil rights would look at him in the same category as a Gloria Steinem uh, or, a, or a Cesar Chavez. And, and, and to my mind, that's really the, the importance of Wang Qingfu. All right. Thank you very much for talking with me today. My pleasure.